Hello, and welcome to RBC Disruptors. I'm John Stackhouse, host of our ongoing conversation about innovation, disruption, and how technology is changing everything around us. If you haven't noticed, there's an election underway in Canada, and to some, it may be the most dangerous election we've ever had, at least in terms of digital threats. We'll see, but we all know what happened in the United States in 2016 and the role that technology can play in influencing the results. Technology poses lots of problems, of course, but it also creates a tremendous amount of opportunity for democracy. It increases engagement, it can get more people to the polls, and it can foster debate around civic issues. To discuss the complex relationship between technology and democracy, I'm joined by Shuman Ghoshmadumder, the Chief Technology Officer of Shape Security. Schumann studied at Western University and then at MIT and has lived in Silicon Valley for nearly two decades, working at Google and now combating the types of cyber threats that we'll be discussing today. Things like deep fakes, fake news, and social media bots, which whether we like it or not, are playing a role in the current election cycle. Earlier today, I moderated RBC Disruptors live from the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto, where we focused on the digital disruption of democracy. Schumann was one of my guests, and we were joined by Zeynep Tufaki, an associate professor at the University of North Carolina and writer for the New York Times, and Kevin Chan, the head of public policy at Facebook Canada. We'll hear parts of that conversation on today's episode. Schumann, welcome to RBC Disruptors. Thanks for having me. So Schumann, you may not recall, but you and I first met through some mutual friends in Silicon Valley uh, who said... There's this great Canadian here who's on the front lines of cybersecurity. And so we connected and got into a conversation about this new idea of deep fakes. And that was you know, maybe a year ago, and it was just emerging as an issue. It's exploded since then. I wonder if we can start by talking about deep fakes. First of all, what are they? A deep fake is most commonly referring to a video where you've got one person whose face has been superimposed on another video to make it look like they were doing something or saying something that they never actually did. So very popularly on the internet, one of the things that you'll see is Nicolas Cage's face superimposed on top of popular movies that he never starred in. But now what we're starting to see is the same technology applied to individuals who are not famous as well as to politicians and uh, all kinds of different people in order to be able to create sometimes comical effects. In other cases, uh, there are demonstrations of the dangers of these types of technologies. And to test this idea, I asked you to make a deep fake of me. And your team jumped on the idea. They just had to take a couple of videos of me that they grabbed from YouTube and created a fake video showing me as one of the judges of American Idol. It wasn't too bad. I'm not sure it was that accurate, but it wasn't, uh, <laughs> it wasn't too bad. The scary part is it took 36 hours and you never talked to me about it. It was just all done electronically. The time constraint uh, was actually the only thing that limited it from being even higher quality. So with more time to be able to train the uh, associated machine learning models, you can create something which is extremely high quality. And there are many examples of this technology uh, in use today. So most commonly, um, you can see uh, comparisons with uh, Hollywood-level special effects. When you use deep fake techniques, you can uh, achieve something on a very low budget, which would normally take... Uh, 
a, a special effects budget of hundreds of millions of dollars to be able to produce. And it uh, democratizes that kind of technology when you think of it for benevolent purposes. But there's also the opportunity for folks to use it to create misinformation and disinformation. And so right now, the technology is just getting off the ground in terms of anyone being able to use it. So what my team did was they actually used an app that's called Fake App. And uh, that requires you to have a machine that has sufficient horsepower and a specific configuration that lets you do the machine uh, learning modeling necessary to be able to take one arbitrary video and meld it with another arbitrary video. But there are other services that are already available that allow anyone just off of their mobile device to be able to create deep fakes. And so the... Uh, top app in the Chinese app store right now is an app called Zhao that allows anyone to be able to take their own video and superimpose their face on top of uh, uh, videos from uh, Titanic and other Leonardo DiCaprio movies. Wow. So one's imagination runs wild thinking of where that's going to take entertainment. Uh, but we're talking about democracy. Let me raise a counter position, and this came to light with the Nancy Pelosi video, which was not really a deep fake, but just an alteration, a slowing down of uh, her real image, her real voice, so it sounded like she was slurring and had uh, a bit of a speech impairment. Those people who hate Nancy Pelosi went crazy with this and shared it. Those people who are sympathetic to her or uh, followers of her used it as ammunition that the world or the, the, the far right is, is against her. So as we think about deep fakes and the advancement of altered videos, is that going to change? Is it going to disrupt democracy or just harden, harden positions? I think it's really difficult to predict exactly what effect a given deep fake video is going to have. So for example, right now, we're at the stage where deep fakes are relatively easy to detect with the naked eye. So you get these press cycles that are discussing deep fake videos of President Obama or Mark Zuckerberg. And what's interesting about those videos and about those press cycles is not the fact that they fooled anyone because everyone knows that the videos are fake. What's interesting is that they're publicizing these fake videos and talking about them. And that has an effect in terms of what people think about those same issues. So now imagine that that happens with a politician. You can have a clever deep fake video get a ton of publicity and everyone knows that it's fake, but what effect does it actually have? You, you could have a deep fake video that portrays the politician in a positive light or a negative light. And it's really difficult to predict whether or not that affects people positively or negatively, depending on their political point of view. And so at that point, uh, it becomes more about attention than anything else. Now, there's also something that's more insidious, which is what happens if you actually fool people. And we haven't seen many good uh, broad examples of that yet. But it's definitely going how, to happen. How close are we to that state where most of us will not be able to, do, to detect any difference between the fake and the real? So there are already examples of non-deep fakes where uh, people get fooled. The Nancy Pelosi video is one example that there were many people that retweeted it 
because of the fact that they thought it was a legitimate video. And it took a day or two before a significant portion of the population realized exactly how that image had been, uh, how that video had been edited. And, you know, there are other examples of uh, videos that have been manipulated using very conventional means that fooled people for a limited amount of time before they realized what editing had uh, come into play. So I think that uh, when it comes to deep fakes, you uh, have the opportunity to have cleverly edited videos now be manipulated in ways that weren't possible uh, with just conventional editing means as opposed to necessarily thinking about uh, an hour-long deep fake video that appears to show something uh, very complex. I think that all you need is a 10-second cleverly edited clip to uh, manipulate people. So for every technology problem, there's a technology solution, and it really depends on the, in- the incentives uh, for the solution to overcome the, the, the problem. What sort of tech solutions are out there to, to deep fakes? I think that uh, there are solutions in a couple of different categories. So one of the things that uh, a number of different companies are working on is the detection of digital manipulation. And so you can look for the artifacts that are inherent in an image that's been digitally altered. You can identify the regions of that image that have been altered relative to regions of that image that have been unaltered. Uh, you can do the same sorts of things with videos, and you can identify where there's the seam of uh, a given false face that has been superimposed on the rest of the video. And you can look at the pattern of pixelation there and the way that uh, that's gotten compressed in order to be able to look for that. That's one thing that uh, has potential as uh, a solution. But I think that you cannot prevent deep fakes and false content from being created in the first place. That technology is already out there. It's getting more uh, disseminated and more sophisticated. What you need to focus on is preventing fake content from being uh, propagated. How do, you, how, how do you do that? So if you've got folks that are creating fake content, they're typically not going to just rely on legitimate users to propagate it. So they're not creating uh, a fake video at uh, great time and expense uh, on the hopes that it's going to go viral. They're going to do what they can to manipulate its ability to go viral. And so that's where they start using fake accounts. They use automation. They use other forms of technology to be able to ensure that that fake content gets in front of as many people as possible. And there's a great potential there to be able to detect the creation of those fake accounts, the usage of automation to be able to propagate that fake content. And so similarly, uh, I think that any online system Uh, that has the capability to be abused will be abused if there's a financial incentive to do so. So there's a new book called Tools and Weapons by Brad Smith. He's the president of Microsoft. And in it, he argues that technology should not move faster than the speed of thought. Schumann, this idea came up during our discussion at the Rotman Forum. And here's what Zainab Tufeki, the associate professor at the University of North Carolina, had to say. Deepfakes is a really good example. It's the kind of thing that I think we can most easily solve. If you have verification technology built into your devices, you will just flip the cultural script and you won't believe it unless it's verified. I mean, we've dealt with stuff like this before. You go from scarcity to abundance, you flip the cultural switch. 
So Schumann, do you think there's a simple solution in the form of verification technology to counter all of the misinformation? I don't think that there's any simple solution for any of these problems. I think that there are a number of different ways that technology can help. And I think that verification technology is actually one of those essential components that we need to try and move towards uh, and uh, standardize as quickly as we can. Now, one of the challenges associated with shifting the way that society views that type of information is uh, how long it takes for society in general to be able to understand and adopt new technology and new practices associated with it. So one of the things that we see is that uh, the security industry, for example, for a long time has been trying to teach people how to engage in proper security practices, and people still reuse passwords across various websites. They still use weak passwords and uh, it's really difficult to enact what, why are you looking change? at me that way Schumann when you say when you when you say <laughs> I, I feel the need to go online now and change uh, some of my passwords it's just so commonplace because of the fact that users will do what is most convenient yes and uh, as soon as you make something difficult or um, uh, complex uh, users are going to do uh, the wrong thing and so what we need to do is make those verification technologies not only omnipresent, but also uh, just uh, easy to use. So most of us also don't floss daily, even when we tell our dentists that we, uh, that, that we do. I'm curious who's responsible for, for this. Um, I don't blame my dentist for the condition of my, my, my teeth. Uh, is the responsibility here... The individual is it government? Is it uh, the platforms that, uh, that that support most of what we're talking about? Uh, is it is it someone else? Is it security agencies? I think that the responsibility is shared, but there's the opportunity for individual groups to be able to do outsized things. So, as you were mentioning, who bears the responsibility for taking care of your teeth? Well, you have some responsibility for that. Your dentist has certain responsibilities for that. But what can the government do to be able to help with that? One of the best examples of uh, public health intervention is adding fluoride to water. So you've got this opportunity for a centralized solution using science and technology that can have an outsized impact on everyone regardless of whether or not they floss daily. So what's a, that's a great comparison. What is the fluoride of cybersecurity? So I think that there's an obligation um, and opportunity for platforms to be able to enact their version of fluoride when it comes to these types of protections. So if we can develop better verification technology, if we can develop uh, technology that allows platforms to be able to detect the creation and uh, uh, prevention of uh, uh, fake accounts and uh, the usage of those accounts, then everyone should use that technology as a standard. And of course, that's one of the things that we're trying to do at Shape. You want that security to be built in by default as opposed to something that users opt into. One of the things that I consistently saw throughout my career was that if you provide great technology solutions that users have to opt into, 99% of users aren't going to use them. 99%. Very commonly. One of the debates that probably everyone is having around technology is how much power is being concentrated in the hands of the few, especially the platform companies and governments, which 
tended to be the, the, the power centers of society looking increasingly skeptically at these, uh, at these platforms and also eyeing the data that they have. And there are some concerns that inevitably states, when they have the opportunity, might want to seize or appropriate some or maybe all of, all of that data. We heard more of that perspective from Zainab in our conversation. Uh, so, and I want to say, this is the thing that really worries me, is that what we're doing is that we build these technologies that do all sorts of good things, right? You can get there, you can have groups, you can do all of this. But then we set them in this business model that has all the surveillance. And we think that governments won't come for this. And to me, that's a real big worry. If you build this kind of infrastructure, you know, China's building it for authoritarian purposes. We're building it to sell people luggage and cars and whatever. And once you have it in place, I find it not implausible that governments will come for this data. I think the only solution is not to have this much data on people rather than saying, well, we'll keep it within Facebook, we'll keep it within Google. I'm kind of like, it won't really be in your hands if you look at history. There will be other actors who will come for this data and they will get it. So that's a strong point of view that governments will inevitably go after that data. And we've certainly seen that there are incidents through history that prompt or provoke something like the Patriot Act that uh, allow, enable, empower governments to, to, to do that. How close are we to that situation again, Schumann? I think that the way that we're going to see this manifested over time is not necessarily in the form of a nefarious grab for data for its own sake, but instead uh, with uh, pretty rational justifications. And we have to think through the ramifications of whether or not that data exists and how that data becomes available in order to be able to deal with uh, unintended consequences that are associated with that. And so uh, I'll give you a very uh, specific example. In order to be able to uh, track activity online for uh, law enforcement purposes, it's really difficult, um, if not impossible in many cases, to be able to get uh, past the encryption that's built in to different platforms. And so you've got law enforcement organizations that ask for backdoors to be installed into encryption systems. And the unintended consequence associated with doing that is that cyber criminals and other uh, malicious actors can discover and use those backdoors in many cases. And so this is one of the reasons that Apple has resisted uh, installing those types of backdoors. And I think that the best answer for uh, guarding against the unintended consequences of anyone accessing uh, data is to not have that data in the first place. So if you've got the opportunity to be able to minimize data collection, to anonymize data collection, to aggregate it instead of storing it as individual records, then all technology platforms should be thinking about how to be able to do that. And uh, adopting a privacy-first mindset, I think that's very powerful, not only uh, for society, but also for those technology platforms themselves from a liability perspective. Since we're talking about democracy, how much of a risk is there that we will be driven away from democracy because of fear? I think of the, the, you know, the Roosevelt line about uh, nothing to fear but fear itself. And there's near hysteria in some conversations 
about the threat to democracy because of digital technology. Maybe it's legitimate fear, but it's certainly a, a certainly strong. And I wonder how much this is going to spook us from the democratic good. Well, I think that I would uh, uh, throw back a Winston Churchill quote that democracy is the worst form of government except for all of the other forms that have been tried from time to time. I think that there are concerns that are associated with uh, how technology and fake content can be used to create propaganda and uh, uh, mislead uh, folks into voting in certain ways, but uh, there isn't really a good alternative. Yeah, although I, 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 I worry about how good even democracy is when participation drops down to a third of the electorate. Part of that's apathy, I guess. Um, part of it's people's choice. They don't like the choice, so they choose to, uh, let's say, not, not, not vote. But if it's also driven by fear or just not believing in the system, not trusting the system, then we will defeat ourselves. How do we avoid that, that scenario? I think that one of the great things that technology has enabled for democracy is the free flow of information. And in order to counteract the effects of misinformation, we need to have more good information. And one of the things about the internet is that it's generally difficult to keep information from getting out there. Even when uh, you've got governments that are trying to control uh, the information that's available online, there are still ways in. And it's because of the basic architecture of uh, the internet itself. But there's also, as we all know, there's too much information out there for anyone to to select from or even even rank. So we rely on platforms, we rely on algorithms to select information for us. Largely, that's that's good. One might argue, but we also rely on our friends, on our on our circles, literally our, our our online friends. And one of the risks that I think about in terms of the consequences of this fear is the loss of trust in the system. And as people maybe lose trust, they tend to tighten their circles, and we take for granted that we live largely in a high trust society. That allows us to function. It's essential to capitalism and free market. It's also kind of essential to democracy to have trust in strangers. That's maybe the greatest asset of Western civilization is this notion of public trust. If that's eroding, if we're retreating to smaller circles of trust and relying on information shared within those circles, we become prisoners. Maybe this is a filter bubble argument. We become prisoners of, uh, of those circles. And if you look at low-trust societies, often in uh, autocratic states, we know the consequences of, of this. Kevin Chan from Facebook Canada in our conversation at the Rotman School had some important observations about strong ties and weak ties. You know, like sociologists talk about sort of weak ties and strong ties, right? So strong ties are your like, fam like close family and friends. And then, uh, you know, your weak ties are kind of everybody else you kind of see on a day-to-day -day or sort of week-to-week -week basis. It turns out that Facebook actually is the place where people have a lot of weak ties, right? And so this idea that um, your friends of only people who share your same viewpoint is, is actually not, doesn't, it's not borne out by the empirical evidence. And in fact, like on a routine basis, I go on Facebook and I'm like, oh my God, like I didn't know John actually thought that. So I don't know that the filter bubble argument has as much purchase, but I would just say, look, I mean, we're in an election, in an election context, like what should you do? You should follow all the leaders. 
right? You should do what you would normally do as just good digital literacy. You should read from multiple sources, right? You should go directly to the Globe and Mail website, and you should go directly to the McLean's website, and you should go directly to the Toronto Star, right? And you should go directly to Sun, and you should go directly to all the leaders. So, Schumann, back to the digital hygiene point from what Kevin was saying, it sounds like, yeah, we should all floss twice daily and uh, take better care of our teeth and go to the dentist and uh, make sure that our governments are guaranteeing fluoride in in our water. All true. All true. But some of us are lazy. Some of us are busy. Some of us actually trust the platforms to do that for us. Is it as simple as us just being good digital citizens and the platforms being held to account and right will overcome any evil that's out there? You know, I'm confident that all of those systems improve over time. The question is in what time frame. So the opportunity exists for people to be able to protect themselves, to be able to uh, consume content in a way that uh, is very deliberate so that they have a, a viewpoint that uh, gives them many different sources of information that they can weigh against one another. But uh, there's also a way that the platforms improve uh, indirectly from those interactions. So this is why we have public debates. This is why we have privacy experts and public policy experts uh, who engage those platforms and you know folks like uh, Zainab and uh, Kevin being able to speak with one another and debate what is the right policy for a platform like Facebook. That's how new ideas get incorporated into technology and ultimately result in a change in the defaults that most users experience. In the U.S., we're just coming into an election season that will undoubtedly be unlike any other, and the role of the digital platforms will be more significant, obviously, than ever. If we think back to 2016, the platforms, Facebook particularly, took a beating in terms of public perception of the impact that they had on democracy. In our conversation at Rotman, Zainab had some strong points of view about the business model and the incentives that are driving this sort of behavior. So when I get on these panels with, you know, Facebook, Google people, they usually end up slightly mad at me, but <laughs> I'm like, I'm your friend. I'm the friend enemy. That ad transparency I, you I talk am not about, I'm very happy. I called for <laughs> I, I wrote an op-ed for the New York Times in 2012 saying we need ad transparency on Facebook. There's all this misinformation. There's this micro-targeting. All this is going on. And I like sort of banged that drum for years, and I was kind of laughed out of the room. At that time, Facebook was arguing in the U.S. that Facebook ads were like skywriting. It would be too onerous to disclose who had funded it. And it was only after the 2016 election and the Brexit and Cambridge Analytica did we finally get what we should have had from day one, which is great, which is ad transparency. In that, I'm sort of saying this because I think there's stuff to be done but it needs to not be Band-Aid. All the stuff we're talking about here is Band-Aid as long as these companies make money the way they do. There is no getting around this. This is an uncomfortable truth, but we picked on Facebook a lot. If you go on YouTube, the recommendation algorithm drives much, much of its revenue, and it will recommend to you conspiracy theories, white supremacy, the moon landing never happened, an incredible array of, I mean, just stuff that is designed to grab especially young people 
Uh, and the recommendation algorithm has your data, knows what will work. It's at the scale of billions. But until the business model changes, putting the onus on individuals and hoping that the whole world acts like Canada is not realistic. So what I would like individuals to do is to demand that this be politically addressed and that we look at these platforms and how they make this their money and say, is this really the kind of society, is this a digital platform we want, and force them into better ways that I think they will survive perfectly fine and say, let's build a better infrastructure for all of us rather than telling everyone to like have be on alert all day and just not fall for these traps that are set up for us globally. Schumann, you've been living and working in the Valley for two decades now. Is the business model of big tech the problem here for democracy? So it's a very broad question. But I think that the fundamental question that Zainab was raising was, does the fact that advertising is used to be able to provide access to these platforms for free, does that create the problem itself? And I personally think that uh, there are ways of being able to balance uh, free business models that monetize using advertising and uh, dealing with problems like fake information and uh, um, fake accounts. I think that one of the big issues that's uh, associated with changing that business model is the fact that you would almost undoubtedly make it harder to be able to get uh, very valuable services to the vast majority of the population. I think that there's great benefit in uh, providing uh, value for free to uh, an entire society. And that allows you to be able to do things that wouldn't be possible if only the wealthy had access to uh, certain types of technologies. I also think that the monetization aspect of those business models uh, is only uh, dealing with a subset of our concerns around misinformation. So when we consider the problem of fake content and fake accounts that are used to propagate fake content, that's much more on the organic side. That has nothing to do in many cases with uh, the relationship between the platform and advertisers. It has to do with the relationship between the platform's features and its users. I started off the podcast suggesting this may be the most dangerous election in Canadian history, or that's certainly what some people are, are projecting it as. Is that overwrought? Are we overly fearful of what could happen in this election? You're on the front lines of the cyber battles. How concerned are you? I think that uh, the biggest concern that I would have is that it would be possible to create a large set of either uh, fake information or misleading information that goes undetected for a long period of time. So there are definitely going to be stories about deep fake videos and about fake content that are going to be jumped on immediately. And, uh, you know, they'll trend on Twitter and people will talk about how uh, a given piece of information is actually false. And I think that all of that is actually pretty good uh, from uh, a, uh, a democracy perspective and from a, a healthy public debate perspective. But the problem is, what happens if you've got something that is so sophisticated that it goes undetected for some period of time? And it doesn't have to be throughout the entire campaign. 
All it has to do is change public opinion during some critical juncture. So over the course of uh, a uh, given set of debates, over the course of um, a uh, critical poll, and of course, uh, during the time of the election itself. What can we as individuals do to better protect ourselves? I think that we have to proactively examine how we use technology individually and how we use technology as a society uh, to be able to get information. So how exactly um, are we informed about the world? There's a phenomenon called the Murray-Gell-Mann amnesia effect that I've discussed with many friends and colleagues over the years, and it refers to the Nobel laureate uh, Murray-Gell-Mann, who was, of course, uh, an expert in physics, which was his field. And when he would read an article in the newspaper about physics, he would invariably uh, be able to pick it apart and uh, identify all of the inaccuracies that that particular article contained. But as soon as he would flip the page over to the sports section or to uh, the uh, politics section, he assumed that everything that was written in those articles was completely accurate because he had no basis on which to pick it apart. And so this is something that I think affects all of us in terms of the way that we consume information. Whenever we read an article about a subject that we're not an expert in ourselves, we just consume that as information and we assume that it's accurate and then we propagate it. And this is one of the reasons that people will read articles and then forward them on Facebook. How many of the millions of people that forward a given article are actually experts in that particular subject? And of course, there's something that uh, is uh, even more common, which is for people to forward articles that they haven't read at all, and they're forwarding it on the basis of just the headline alone. Yeah, I was heartened for a moment that you uh, believe uh, that many people read. That, w that would be encouraging. But I think we know that politics has become a visual sport. And every good campaign is now sort of wrapped around the, the, the visual opportunity uh, to create that perfect image with a signal from it uh, to, uh, to people who may be inclined to vote, to vote that way, and then distort it as you say, by those who want uh, to uh, scare people away from that, uh, from that proposition. Yeah, part of the challenge is that uh, people don't like having their worldview challenged either. So if uh, you encounter an article which is actually inaccurate but agrees with your worldview, you kind of like that article more than an article which may be more accurate that disagrees with that worldview. So is the problem us or technology? Well, as we were discussing in the panel, uh, I don't believe that technology is either good or bad. And technology is constantly changing as its uh, fundamental nature. And so we have the opportunity to either use it for good or bad purposes. And uh, uh, society collectively has to decide what uh, uh, laws and uh, norms to uh, adopt in order to make sure that it's uh, used as positively as possible. Shubin, let me wrap up by asking whether you're more hopeful or fearful looking at the Canadian election this year, the US election next year, and democracy more broadly. When we think about where we are in the evolution of technology, when we think about 
the incredible debates we've had just over the last 24 months in terms of the impact of technology on democracy, I think a lot of people are confused. They don't know whether to be more confident or less about the democratic process. Where are you at? I'm hopeful. I think that it is fantastic that uh, cybersecurity and concerns around how we're using technology and how we're consuming information are now part of a societal level conversation. An example of this uh, uh, from uh, an educational perspective is that when I studied computer science, people generally didn't take security courses. When I studied management, people generally didn't take security courses. Those courses generally weren't even offered in business schools. And now, Cybersecurity is something which is very common in computer science programs as well as in uh, business schools and uh, in uh, law schools, even medical schools. Um, you know, across the board, I think everyone is thinking about uh, security and uh, our use of technology. That's a great point to wrap up on. Democracy, certainly as long as I've been watching elections, has been challenged. It's a, it's a rough and tumble sport. It's a competitive sport. It draws the best of humanity and sometimes the worst of, 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 of humanity. And it succeeds when, as a collective, we're all vigilant, when we participate, when we keep an eye out, when we hold the powers to account. That's democracy at its best, no matter what Churchill might have, uh, might have said. Certainly, the stakes are higher and the challenges may be greater than ever, but so is the power of individuals to stand up for democracy and to participate in democracy. Schumann, thanks for an incredible conversation. Thank you for being part of RBC Disruptors. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to RBC Disruptors. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd love for you to subscribe using your favorite podcast platform and submit a rating that really helps us reach a wider audience. You can also take part in the conversation by using the hashtag RBC Disruptors. Today's episode was produced by Kyle Fulton. I'm John Stackhouse. Thanks for listening.